you please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're in 1 Corinthians 14, the whole chapter. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 are part of Paul's correcting the Corinthians on their misuse of spiritual gifts. We look to the reading of God's word if you would join me in prayer. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from your mouth. Father, make us hungry today for your heavenly food that will nourish us in the ways of eternal life. And this we pray and ask through Jesus, who indeed is the bread of heaven. Amen. We'll begin by looking at verses 26 to 33. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three or at most, or two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. But two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. For a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion but of peace. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. There are many things that are happening in chapter 14. There's contention about prophecy and tongues. There's instructions on how to run a worship service. And there are disruptive women in the church. And just like the other problems that they've had that we've looked at, the Lord's Supper marriage issues, uh, a church discipline problem, the problem with divisions and factions, meat offered to idols and disruptive prayers, Paul also takes this one head on. From the start, we have to understand that Paul spends a lot of time in his letter correcting their problems, the messes that they're in. It shouldn't surprise us that one of the most gifted churches in the New Testament is also one of the biggest problem child. It's very often is the case. The biggest threat to great movements of God come from excesses within those very movements. Jonathan Edwards, a well-known American pastor, theologian, he was part of the first great awakening in America in the 18th century. And yet he viewed with suspicion the emotional excesses of the revival. And he also warned pastors who overly emphasized these outward signs and manifestations that went with it. Because it's easy to get caught up in the fervor of great events and lose sight of the Lord. And so the Lord instructs our worship to Him, that our, our joyful, heartfelt worship is to be done decently and in order. Love for God, love for others is a defining characteristic and tone of our worship. And because the Lord is the one who directs us, we allow His Word to guide our worship. And even as we begin, we think about that word, worship. We use it a lot as Christians. What exactly do we mean by it? Biblical worship is where God is both the subject and the object of worship, which means we worship to God, and worship is for God, and that God is active in worship. It's directed to God, 
It is for God, and God is in worship. So actually, contrary to a lot of American Christians in, in thinking, worship is not about me. It's not about what I am getting out of it. Yes, God generously blesses those who come to him. We are often blessed by coming in to God's presence. There's no doubt about it. But worship is, as one writer puts it, nothing less than an invitation to participate in the life of the triune God. God is inviting us to participate in himself. In the Reformation, there was a resurgence of this understanding of God acts and we respond. We participate in worship by receiving everything that God has done, by responding to his invitation. Or as Nicholas Walterstorff has said it, he said, the liturgy, and by liturgy, it, it just means that what we do, the shape, the structure of our worship, everyone has a liturgy. The liturgy is a meeting between God and God's people, a meeting in which both parties act, but in which God initiates and we respond. I know these words are very familiar to us. We speak about this a great deal, but don't let it rush by you. Because what I'm saying is fundamentally out of accord with much of contemporary ideas of worship and practice. You can see in the little sidebars in the bulletin, you know, we, those get changed periodically. But it says right there, our worship is a response to God's initiative. The pattern of our worship reflects the gospel. That's what we're saying. And if I am the primary actor and not God, then in worship, how I express myself is of the utmost importance. God becomes, as it were, the audience of my performance. And this wrong thinking then gets blended with our American cultural values of expressing ourselves in ways that define worship that we think is authentic, genuine, sincere, spontaneous, innovative, novel. All of those things rather than the word of God. Paul is recentering the Corinthians around Worship that responds to the Lord's gracious acts. What God has done for us in Jesus. So our gathering in worship is to build one another up in our faith and our understanding of this. It's also actively loving one another. And Paul says that this is done through worship that is intelligible and orderly. And that wasn't happening at Corinth. Well, worship, that's intelligible. Looking at that first, he says in verse 1, pursue love, because we're just coming right off the love chapter. All of this is in context. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, lots of ways to think about prophecy. I'm just going to give a, a quick summary. Prophecy, in short, is a scriptural reflection with pastoral application. A scriptural reflection with pastoral application. 
we often think prophecy is predicting the future. If you actually read the prophets, there is very little of that. There's some, but that's not what most of it is. Most of the prophets are calling God's people back to God and back to loving one another as God told them in his word. It's telling them you are not doing towards God or towards one another what God has commanded you. Repent and turn again. Pointing people back to the word of God in an application centered around the word. Tongues, as we see in Acts 2, is speaking a language that you previously didn't know. And from what Paul says here, the ability to interpret that language was usually a different gift. Now, even if some want to argue that tongues is something other than a human language, the principles still remain the same. Nothing changes. Using God's gifts in worship means that these gifts must be intelligible, must be comprehensible to everyone. And Paul explains that further in verses 5 to 9 about the intelligibility of building one another up. And then he says in verse 10, There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are so eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul's not against the gift. He's against the misuse. He says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And, And Paul is emphatic on this point. To where he concludes in verse 28, if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. No one to interpret this language, then stop speaking in the service. Why? Because what is not comprehensible does not build up, doesn't edify. The person speaking may be built up in some way, but it violates the principle of loving others. In verse 21, he then quotes from Isaiah 28. This can seem a little confusing because of the context. Paul's making an argument that not immediately uh, accessible, but it it doesn't quite make sense unless you understand the, the, the full context. He quotes from Isaiah 28. He says, in the law, which is a generic word for the word of God, he's using it here. He says, in the law it's written, by people of a strange tongue, And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, Israel. And even then they won't listen to me, says the Lord. And then Paul says in verse 22, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for believers but for believers. So it's like, well, how do those two thoughts connect? The passage that Paul is quoting from in Isaiah is about God's judgment on his people for disobeying him. He brought the Assyrians, foreign speakers, to punish their rebellion. And Paul is saying that unintelligible speech in the church would be like treating God's people as being in a state of punishment or in exile. That's the point he's making. If you're speaking unintelligibly, when you saw that last in Scripture, it was God's judgment on his people, not his blessing. So he's saying, don't do that. Speak intelligibly 
If not, be silent. And in verse 23, Paul says that if an unbeliever hears Christians babbling in an unknown language, he'll think you're crazy. But, verse 24, a prophetic word, a scriptural exhortation will bring conviction. Our worship needs to be understandable and it needs to be orderly. He goes on in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If there's an interpretation to an unknown language, he said, let there be two or three at most. No interpreter, verse 28, stop speaking. And even with prophetic exhortations, in verse 29, he says, only two or three speak. For you can all prophesy one by one so that you may all learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Now, what was taking place in pagan worship, this kind of control over the individual was not being done. The idea was that this spirit came upon you and you were no longer in control and it was controlling you and just could run amok. Paul's saying, no, if you're influenced by the Holy Spirit, you're still in control of yourself. God's not a God of confusion. You're not worshiping like the pagans who had something come over them and they weren't in control and all these crazy things were happening. Say, no, that's not to be. And, and then Paul says something that's hard for us to fully understand. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? As I said before, we're listening to half of the conversation, and we have to piece together the other half. It's the same things we saw when Paul spoke about head coverings. We'll see that a little later when he talks about baptism of the dead. He's addressing problems in their church that we have to reconstruct, but they fully understood. So, my best summary. In chapter 11, Paul has already said that men and women can pray and prophesy in the service. But they must do so in a culturally appropriate ways, not to be disruptive. He's already said they both sing. So this call to silence is not an absolute prohibition. Paul has said in verse 28, the misuse of tongues, be silent. In verse 30, competing prophecy, be silent. So whatever some of the women were doing, it was a misuse and it needed to be silenced. A couple thoughts. The Oracle of Delphi, some of you may have heard of that. That was a, the priestess at the Temple of Apollo. And she was supposedly given divine insight, and particularly women would come and they would ask her questions. Should I marry this man? Should I name my child this? Should I do this or that? And, and so applying the, the prophet, the prophetess, with questions. It could be that some in Corinth were emulating this in some way. It could also be the case. That some married women were being disruptive in how they went about inquiring of men who were not their husbands. As we saw earlier with head coverings, in Roman culture, this was very offensive. So having read some 20 different commentaries on this, it's not very clear. 
other than some women were being disruptive in the service in a way that Corinthians understood, and Paul clearly corrects. The takeaway for us, correct disruptive behavior in the church when it happens. Beyond that, I don't think a lot more application of that can be given to us because we just simply don't know. Paul then puts forth his authority as an apostle. He lays down the law, as it were. He says, anyone who thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you as a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. This is the way it's to be. Your gifts aren't to run amok in the church as you see fit. And, And then he ends, he says, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all these things should be decently and in order. Now, you've heard me say this before, the early church uniformly recognized the great sign gifts were no longer happening shortly after the time of the apostles. That's really not controversial. This does not mean that God stopped interacting with his people. What it means is that particular gifts were no longer prevalent with certain individuals. God's still doing things, but in the sense that this person having this gift to do that, we just don't see happening any longer. And even in the New Testament, we see that even with Paul, the miraculous is not always present. Paul came to the Galatians. He said in chapter 4, verse 15, he said, you know, it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So Paul came to them with some sort of physical affliction. And in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, Paul is writing towards the end of his life. He he tells Timothy that he left Trophimus, who was uh, one of the people working with him. I left Trophimus ill on the island of Miletus. So Trophimus, his traveling companion, who's a part of all these things that's happening, he wasn't healed. He was left there to recover. Now, I'm not trying to be polemical. I'm not trying to pick a fight with Christians uh, on these issues. But these are the, the things that we, we live in, the, the struggles that we have as the body of Christ corporately in the world, certainly in our country. There, there are principles to follow in how we worship God that God gives to us. That there's not and a static overriding and a craziness in, in how we worship, we're to conduct ourselves, lots of styles, lots of forms, but in a way that brings honor to one another, in a way that brings comprehension and under, things that are intelligible. And if we're not doing that, it's a violation of the Word of God. You see, particularly in America, we think that something is spiritual if it's innovative, novel, or spontaneous. And some people think that the more unconventional that something is, the more likely it's spiritual. No, that's not the case. God is a God of decency and order. I appreciate New Testament scholar Anthony Thistleton. He said, church order, far from suggesting a lack of concern for the spiritual renewal, church order provides a medium for the expression of love and respect for others inspired by the Spirit. It it doesn't allow individuals to to run this way or that way, to override people or to take things in a direction that they want to do. It allows for everyone to come together 
in a participatory worship, responding to what God has graciously done to us. Traffic rules are given for the good of all. I'm sure some of you have traveled to countries where those exist in name and not in function. There are lots of accidents, there's lots of injuries, and there are lots of deaths. The things that God gives to us are for our good. The rules, the settings, the disciplines. At the very headwaters of Israel being formed as a worshiping nation. We see in Leviticus 9, they're coming together really for the first time in in the, the tabernacle worship. And God's presence was so palpable in this first great worship service. That fire comes down, consumes all the offering, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And it said, when all the people saw this, they shouted and fell on their faces. Um, There must have been an amazing experience. And what happens immediately after? Something very unexpected. Aaron, the high priest, his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were just newly minted priests. It says in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took censers, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. A fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Before all the people, I will be glorified. You think of this amazing first worship service as the people of God. And the two of the officiating priests die because they violated God's statutes. Became overwhelmed in the moment and they did what we would have said was just enthusiasm. But the Lord said that was unauthorized. Because God calls us to worship and he directs our worship. Worship is our response to God's initiative. We see that in 2 Samuel 6 when David's bringing the ark back and they're dancing before the Lord and they're super excited about everything and Uzzah reaches out because the ark's stumbling on the oxen cart and he, he's put to death by the Lord. Like, why on earth would you do that? God meaning grumpy? No, he's holy. And he gave them very ex- explicit directions. This is how you're to carry my ark. The Levites carry it. You don't put it on a cart. You don't do what you want because it feels right for you. I am holy. I'm a holy God and you approach me to the way that I have commanded you. And and what we see then is our worship is a response to a loving God who calls us into relationship with himself through his son. He gives us his spirit to dwell in our hearts. And so how we conduct ourselves in worship matters. There's lots of styles, there's lots of forms to be sure. But God's word directs and guides us, first and foremost. It's always a response to us from his initiative. Because worship is to God, it is for God, and it is in God. And we have the privilege of being in the presence of a God who acts. A God who gives graciously and kindly. That is the joy that is set before us. And 
Only in Christ can you have at times what is a sobriety with a joyfulness, a free-flowingness with a regularity and an order and a structure. That it's in the Lord that all those things come together. And we're always kind of bouncing from one side of the ditch to the other on this. Our air is a little more on order. Others' air is a little more on free-flowing, to be sure. But ultimately, for all of us, God directs us. We listen to his word to correct us. We understand that the comprehensibility of the gospel is first and foremost. That this order, this intelligibility is a loving act given to others so that we would be built up together. That we all collectively as the body of Christ, the church, are being invited into his presence so that we all together would be able to use whatever gifts, abilities, and services that he has given to us to elevate all of us together. That we would be better worshipers with a greater capacity of knowing him and loving one another. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. Indeed, you are a God who acts. You are a God who sees. And Father, we would ask that you would continue to instruct us in our worship to you. Father, that you would continue just to show us the magnificence of Jesus. Lord, that our worship would carry such a tone of overwhelming love for you and for one another. Lord God, build us up in the faith. Use us here as a witness to the world around us in the valley of the saving work of Jesus. And we pray and ask all of this in his mighty name.